0: Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Straughan for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours Programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he considers the absence of Russia from the peace negotiations and the implications of that absence for the rest of the 20th century.
1: The winter of 1916-17 was hard across all of Europe harvests had failed in the previous year, food was short. But nowhere was more directly affected by this impoverishment than Russia. The revolution broke out in Petrograd in March 1917, and what drove it, not least, was shortage of food. The provisional government, which came into power as a consequence of the toppling of the Tsar, was committed to maintaining the war effort. Many saw this first Russian Revolution as an opportunity for Russia to become more truly effective as a belligerent, that liberalisation would result in the further mobilisation of Russia because there would be support for the government. That did not happen. In April 1917, Lenin arrived at the Finland station in Petrograd. He had been brought in a sealed train from Switzerland across Europe by the Germans, specifically to undermine Russia from within. It's too simple to see a German conspiracy as the sole source of the Russian Revolution. But it's important to realize that the Germans give a minority socialist party, the Bolshevik Party, a leverage which it would not otherwise have had. The Bolsheviks were committed to taking Russia out of this war in a way that other parties of the left in Russia were not. What that meant was the Bolsheviks could appeal to that war weariness in the Russian people that sense that the war itself was the problem, not just the system of government within Russia. Lenin is the principal ideologue and driver of the Bolsheviks, and having their leader on the ground in Russia provided the momentum, which led ultimately to a second Russian revolution in November 1917. That revolution, largely orchestrated by Trotsky, Lenin's assistant, is actually quite a narrow seizure of power. The Bolsheviks get control of the city of Petrograd, today's St. Petersburg, but they still don't have control of much of the rest of Russia. What they do is spread their influence outwards from the city of Petrograd, across the rest of the Russian Empire, towards the front, where Russian soldiers are still fighting the central Powers. Immediately after the November 1917 revolution, Lenin announces that the Russians will now seek a peace on the basis of no annexations and no indemnities. In other words, all those secret treaties which have been negotiated by Russia with its Entente allies, with Britain and France, are thrown out of the window. Russia just wants to be out of this war. It does not want further territorial gains. And what this suggests is that Pre-1917 Russia and Britain and France have been behaving like imperial acquisitive powers in exactly the same way as they're accusing Germany of doing. So the credibility of the Allied powers is put on the line by this declaration. But too much has happened between 1914 and 1917 to be able to roll the clock back to where it had been in 1914. The challenge, therefore, for the United States and its associates is to think How can they counter the ideological pull of a Bolshevik appeal that goes beyond Russia? The threat now is not just that Russia is going to leave the war, enabling the Germans to concentrate their forces possibly in the West in 1918, which is what they will do. It's the internal threat of revolution within the belligerent countries that socialists in France and Britain will feel the same way as socialists in Russia. This is where Woodrow Wilson's famous speech on the 14 points, delivered on the 8th of January 1918, fits in. It's a statement of liberal values, liberal war aims in relation to the conduct of the First World War, and it's directed above all at Russia. It is trying to say to the peoples of the Allied powers, this is a war which is worth fighting for in terms of progressive values. We can create a better world out of this war. By establishing the principle of national self-determination, by establishing a League of Nations for preventing war before it occurs, this is therefore an answer not just to German imperialism and its threat of militarism, its threat to a European order. This is an answer, too, to the appeal of the left. So it's an ideological statement, and it's an enormously powerful statement because it revives the determination to fight this war in the Allied countries, which is wavering in late 1917, After his declaration about peace, Lenin had to move fast. Negotiations with the central powers, and particularly, of course, with Germany, begin almost immediately following the November 1917 revolution. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the treaty between Russia and the four central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, is signed in March 1918. By its terms, Russia loses what we would now define as all European Russia. About a third of its territory is sacrificed. So determined is Lenin to have this peace treaty, which he has promised effectively as the condition for delivering the revolution. He's also ready to accept it because in the long run, he believes that there will be world revolution, that revolution will spread from Russia to other countries. And at that point, the opportunity for some rectification will follow naturally. So he's prepared to make a short-term sacrifice for what he hopes will be a long-term gain. What brest Litovsk shows Russia's erstwhile allies is that Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire remain rapacious powers bent on annexation. They have not reformed their ways, and that further serves to revivify their war efforts and their determination to fight. This is a clear warning that Prussian militarism is indeed still alive and well. The result of Brest-Litovsk is that when the Germans do finally sign an armistice on the 11th of November 1918, Russia is not part of the negotiations. The Allies' viewpoint is that because Russia has already signed its own peace treaty, it cannot be party to a subsequent peace treaty with Germany. Romania had also left the war, signing its own peace treaty with the central powers, the Treaty of Bucharest, in May 1918. But it manages to re-enter the war just in time, on the 11th of November itself, so that it is represented in Paris in 1919. The absence of Russia from Paris in 1919 is a principal cause of the ultimate failures of the peace settlements that are then signed. The reason for that is partly that the Allies don't have the troops to implement the peace terms on the ground. If you throw communism into the mix as well, you can begin to see why the powers meeting in Paris should be so concerned. Here is a motivating force which cuts across frontiers, has the capacity to cut across peoples, and which engenders civil war not just in Russia but also in Poland, in Finland, war of incredible violence and intensity, where issues of ethnicity are suffused with this ideological commitment. The worry in Paris is that this Bolshevik advance, the advance of the Reds, will not just affect the countries to the immediate west and southwest of Russia – but penetrate into Germany and the lands of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire to such an extent that the more pressure that is put on the Germans and the Austrians from Paris, the greater likelihood of Bolshevik success. This is an ideological threat for the United States, as Wilson had shown in the 14 points. It's a geopolitical threat for the British Empire because Britain has interests in 1919, 1920, 1921, from the Dardanelles and the immediate territories of the former Ottoman Empire, right through the Middle East, to the northern Indian frontier. The fear here is that what Soviet Russia is now looking to is ultimately a world revolution, that Bolshevism will play, for example, into anti-imperialism, which will itself subvert the British Empire. These Allied fears about the possibility of Bolshevism in Germany are sustained by the fact that Germany has a very powerful socialist party and a very powerful communist party, but also by the fact that immediately after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, Germany sets about establishing better economic relations with the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union needs German expertise, particularly technological expertise, particularly scientific expertise, what the Russians can give the Germans is the resources they need in order to sustain the war while the war is going on. But once the war is over, can provide the resources and more importantly, the space within which Germany can covertly begin its own recovery. When the peace treaty of Versailles is signed at the end of June 1919, that limits the German army to a strength of 100,000 men. It says the German army cannot have tanks, it cannot have aircraft, it cannot have a general staff. One of the ways in which the German army will get round this problem is by developing tanks, training with tanks, developing equipment within the Soviet Union, and doing so covertly out of sight of Allied control and Allied inspection. Today, we think of the failure of Versailles. As providing a direct route to German revisionism, German rejection of Versailles and ultimately the Second World War. What concerned the great powers in the 1920s was the threat of the Soviet Union not the threat of Germany but at the same time what is going on is the very recovery of Germany thanks to the Soviet Union which will in turn enable Germany to fight the Second World War. Germany's reliance On the Soviet Union continued into the opening months of the Second World War. Germany and the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact in 1939 and it was that pact that enabled Germany to invade Poland. The Soviet Union took part in the partition of Poland and the Soviet Union continued to supply Germany right up until Germany declared war on Russia in June 1941. After the Second World War was over it became conventional for entirely understandable reasons to see the Cold War as a direct consequence of the Second World War. The Cold War became formalized by 1948, NATO was formed in 1949, and people were too close to the events to take a longer-term perspective, to look back to the years 1917 to, let's say, 1924, the year that Lenin died. But as we have gained distance, Our perspectives on the emergence of the Cold War have changed, and many historians today would now point to the period immediately after the end of the First World War and to the absence of the Soviet Union from the Paris Peace Conference as themselves pivotal in the emergence of what we later came to call the Cold War. In the next podcast, I shall be talking about the League of Nations, its ambitions, and its long-term legacy.
0: That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.